Hey everybody, you're very welcome to this week's episode of the Asking for a Parent podcast. In this week's listeners' questions, I'm going to be joined by Professor Jim Lucy to answer the questions that you sent in over the last week. Before I get to that, I want to say thank you to my three people who contributed to our Young Adults uh, Listeners' Voices episode last week. We spoke to Emer, Gráinne and Owen, and they gave us a real poignant insight into what it has been like to be a young adult in a pandemic. And uh, I think the overriding message from them was, you know, yes, there are some people in that age group who are not perhaps sticking to the rules as they should, but that is not a reflection of most of them. And I just wanted to thank them for their insights and their time and their humor in what was a really great episode and the responses that we've had from people have been fantastic. Secondly, I wanted to say that although, you know, we are going very strong in terms of our downloads and everything else, we were always setting this task of this podcast to be an accompaniment through the pandemic. And I think as time has gone on, and we are in many ways emerging into some degree of normality, the vaccine rollout seems to be going well. There are uh, shops reopening, schools are going well, children's sport is returning. And in light of that, we have decided that perhaps we will conclude our series two uh, and perhaps offer uh, an ongoing episode, but less regularly. We will do a listener's questions episode, maybe every fortnight or every month, depending on the degree of questions that come in. So this will be the penultimate episode. We will do one more episode, which will be the wrap up session for season two, similar to what we did in season one, where we recap on all of the issues that came up and offer you a kind of a, a go-to resource to try and consolidate all the learnings that we had from our guests and from uh, all our experts who came in and joined me for the listeners' questions. So that's the wrap-up session next week. And then after that, we will do maybe a listeners' questions once a month uh, and see how that goes. But I just wanted to say, I wanted to say thank you to you for listening and for downloading and sharing. It's been an absolutely overwhelming response. And to say that the podcast recording has helped me massively to get through what has been a really tricky year. And I really want to thank Adam who gave of his time uh, with absolutely no expectation in terms of uh, payment or uh, anything like that. He was incredibly generous and his time editing these episodes are, is phenomenal. And uh, we owe him a great debt of gratitude for that. And which brings me on to this week's episode. As I said, this week I'll be joined by the Professor Jim Lucy, who is uh, a wonderful man who I know personally and professionally, and I'll introduce him properly in a second. But when Jim and I recorded this, there was an issue with my audio. Uh, I had not correctly put the settings in my Zoom account, and the audio was really poor on my side. So although this episode was recorded some weeks ago, it has taken Adam primarily a long time to try and and fix it, uh, and it has meant that some of the uh, places in the episode where I'm speaking have been re-recorded for me. So I wanted to apologize for that if it's a little bit clunky, but I did want to thank Adam for all his efforts and to uh, explain to Jim why there has been a delay in this episode. But I think it's been well worth the, the effort putting it in because let me introduce you to Tim Lucy. He is a, a man who's a professor of psychiatry in Trinity College. He is a... Uh, Clinical PLAS Clinical Director in St. Patrick's Mental Health Services and one of the leading minds in mental health uh, in this country. Uh, you may not be accustomed to hearing Jim talk about parenting or young people because primarily his work is with adults, but Jim has a fantastic way of seeing the world and the mind and the brain 
that as often leaves me uh, inspired when I speak with him. He has some really interesting views on where mental health services are going uh, and what needs to change. Um, but most importantly, Jim is somebody who always puts the patient first, always puts the client at the forefront of his decision-making and understanding. And he's truly an un been an un inspiration to me. Um, he's a fantastic uh, academic. He also would know so much about history and about Jonathan Swift and uh, even finds time from time to time to, to sing in a choir. But a wonderful friend and a really wonderful man. And uh, when I met him, uh, we, we chatted for quite a bit. Um, but this is the parts of that conversation that I think you'd really enjoy. And so without further ado, I'll introduce you to Professor Jim Lucy. And I opened the session by asking him, how has it been for him in 2021? Uh, how has he coped with the pandemic, the new way of being, the new way of having to work remotely, etc. And this is what Jim had to say. Well, it, it, it's been, I've, I've been very fortunate, but you know, it's been challenging. We haven't had the great losses that some have had, you know, we, we, we're all alive. I've not missed a funeral um, and so on. I'm not, I'm not grieving somebody immediately. So I'm very conscious of how lucky we've been. But I've been in cocoon since March. Uh, I developed a, a, a sort of serious pneumonia the, the months before COVID, a viral pneumonia. It gave me the fright of my life. And uh, so I was recovering from that in my retirement from the directorship. That was part of the reason why I was happy to direct to change my professional term. I I come to the feeling that my body was telling me something. I've been saying to people, let's let's listen to ourselves in a holistic fashion. I said, listen to me. Um, the hospital were happy for me to move on, and I was happy. But then I this came and I said, oh my goodness. And so I was I was I you know working from home became something I did. Actually, my uh, we talk about family. We all had to do that. There's at one stage, there were seven of us in this house, people coming and going. So I sort of lived in Cocoon, the first lockdown. Second lockdown, we got a bit better. The weather was lovely. We could make maybe... Third lockdown, I found very hard. Um, I just found it personally hard. Hard to explain all that. We can talk about it if you like. Um, and I managed partly by focusing on work. I mean, the work is huge. Um, I put... Uh, I, you know, we, the second lockdown, we got the shed fixed. <laughs> it's it's as mundane as that folks this is what we're talking about so that was a huge thing we hired a truck my wife's people are from uh from wexford and we went down we brought the contents of our shed down to uh bring and buy in near the hook and uh, so it, it made the price of uh, some church chairs and <laughs> and stuff it was uh, but it was a big thing i got uh, internet put into the shed that i think would power the pentagon so i i actually now in front of an enormous screen and I've been working, seeing patients, I do ward rounds. The, the hospital's great because we, we actually had prepared for this, which is interesting. So we were able to pretty seamlessly shift into a 21st century approach to mental health care. It's not perfect, but it's adaptable and flexible. And, and we've reached out to people. So I do three clinics a week, to, you know, ward round a week and do all my paperwork all from here with admin support, of course, lots of good people, but utterly transformative completely isolated in a way. And so I've had to adapt in various different ways. So has it been hard? Yeah. But am I lucky? Oh, so lucky. I then asked Jim about the incidence of mental health problems in the adult population. As someone who would be accustomed to how children and families are doing, I really wanted to know 
what Jim's impression of the last 12 months have been in terms of referral rates, et cetera, to the adult population. And here's what Jim had to say. The, the prevalence of mental health distress, the common mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, addictions, uh, uh, you know, self-harm, that the prevalence of those has doubled. I'm not making that up. I'm not lying about that. I'm not exaggerating about it. Why would I lie? But I mean, I'm not being hyperbolic. It's very serious. Um, you know, let's remind ourselves of what the figures would have been. Common mental health disorders had an incidence of one in six in the year, okay? And every family in the land would have had somebody with a mental health difficulty. Now the incidence is two in six, one in three. And actually the enduring nature of this means that things short, otherwise relatively brief crises, re adjustment reactions, are probably not re remitting as quickly as they would. And so the data says that 20% of the population now has a mental health difficulty of clinical significance. Not my words, Irish yeah. Journal words. Now, if we look at that amongst a subsets of the population, um, the healthcare population have suffered twice again. So their rate of, uh, uh, their level of distress is 40%. And this is again supported so that your colleagues and mine and the front frontline workers, the people who are experiencing this are experiencing literally huge volumes of anxiety and distress. And the sense, I feel that there is something in this that we have the stuff in us to manage, but we forgot about it as though, as though the hectic world we were in was the real one. Actually, it turns out that was the transient world. We've gone back right. to something that is real, which is about family and, uh, and keeping on, keeping on and the world turning. And, and it's, I think, a source then of resilient hope you know, rather than, oh, this is unprecedented, it never happened before. Uh, no, actually, no, sieges have happened since since Cain, okay? Mm. Uh, 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 viruses have happened since since the beginning of time. And this is a siege war. It's a, it, we, we can't see the enemy. And also millennia have changed. So I think this is the beginning of the 21st century. I don't think the 21st century began in January 1, 2, 0, 0, 0. So it, it, it began now just as the 20th century began in 1918, you know, just as the 19th century, the historians tell us, began at the end of the French Revolution. The chronology and the Gregorian calendar don't match, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's reassuring. So now we have a new century started with a great global event. What's different about it and what's similar about it is part of the untangling of how we manage our anxiety, I think. So I think there's a great deal similar about it that harkens back to things that are strong and, um, you know, of nature within our being that we'll be able for this because we've done this before. And when, Jim, did that interest happen for you in terms of the, because, you know, you're, you're a purveyor of the mind and the, the workings of it and the brain and all that stuff, but, and I have a huge interest in the human subject but was that always there did that come late was i don't that... know i don't know I, I i didn't come late i mean i i uh i went to school in in, in dublin the holy ghost fathers and uh, again it was very sort of it was a new it was it was st michael so it wasn't it wasn't what it is now it was very new then it was part of black rock and um, my uncles had been holy ghost fathers i was very much a preferred son there but I didn't fit in in lots of respects. I wasn't a rugby player. I, I see out of one eye. 
uh, doesn't help if you're going to catch a ball. It's one of the reasons. I probably also didn't have any talent for it. So, yeah, I, I was part of that. It was in the musicals, the debates, the, that kind of thing. It was a small school, very much, in a way, an extension of family with good and bad about that. But they sort of had a, they, they couldn't really place me and they wanted me to do law. Um, I was a debater and I did more comic debate than really rational debate. Uh, so, you know, won some prizes for that. And there was a new learned to do law. So I was sort of set up to go to do law at the end of school. And what I couldn't do was, I couldn't do it because I, 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 within, I just didn't go actually. I, I bunked, I was signed up for UCD um, because I, I, I couldn't cope with contention. And I was aware of myself enough to know that I had that issue, that I, I, I really didn't like argument. I, I, I can argument. I can, mm. I can, I, but I don't, I, I, it just wasn't going to satisfy me to, even to win or lose an argument wasn't satisfactory. I couldn't have articulated that, but I think I went into a deep anxiety post leaving cert. I'm very sympathetic to people doing, and so I, I remember sort of not being able to move for days, uh, looking out the window, staring. Uh, my late father coming to me and saying, look, Jimmy, what are we going to do? And I just, uh, I, and I, I was speechless. I, I would have been days and days like that. Probably more. And was that about making a choice about what to do with the rest of your life? Or was it? Wasn't, it? it wasn't even, as, it was subcerebral. It was visceral I, and mental in the sense that I was completely shut down. I couldn't, where was, what was to become of me was a, uh, no, thankfully, thankfully it lifted, but it lifted again through great, privilege and, mm. and, 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 and benevolence. So both of them sort of said, what do we do with Jimmy? My, I, I've older, smarter brothers and a uh, brother and sisters, lot, lots of their, they, they, so I was, I was the fourth in the family. Um, and, and, and we all play family roles. So my family role was somewhat the, 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 the sort of, um, well, I, I won't put words that they put words into, I had a family role. Um, so I fit my place into it and, and, uh, they were going on doing their things. So my father, who was at that stage, he'd been city manager and he was on the board of various hospitals. He contacted uh, the College of Surgeons and he said, would you take um, an, an errant law student in and, and, and give him a place in your school? And they said, yes, it was before the CEO, it was before points. Um, I've always been grateful to the College of Surgeons for that. So I started in near November um, uh, to do medicine and um, found myself doing medicine in the College of Surgeons, which was a stunning, stunning place. It had just opened a new building. There were maybe 30 Irish and 200 people from other, other places of the world. The only place in Ireland where you had the sudden awareness of the, of the whole world, enormous privilege, but shocking at 70, 1977, mm -hmm. I, was, I was 18. Um, and within about a few months, I remember going to my father and saying to him, look, dad, you know, I couldn't do law. I actually can't do medicine. I'm completely, I'm completely. And he was wonderful. I mean, it echoes your book, Cop On, which I, I love because it has this whole idea of parental management as containment of the, the distress of the child or the distress of the growing creature. You know, you're, I, I, have a, I see things visually. So I've imagined that growing is like, you know, cracking out of the egg, okay? And some way, although the, the hen is sitting on that egg, it's actually containing the cracks while they are done. You know, the, the, if you think about it, that fracture has to happen, but it has to happen in a warm, contained self-nest. And so my father's very wise. I, I was the fourth. And he said, Jimmy, that's a real pity. And I said, why? He said, well, I've paid all the fees in the college surgeons. 
you know it's not like your your brothers your brother and sisters went to um they went to places where you know there was you know they went private college this is a private i i, I don't know I, i've had to pay the fees i said what have you done yeah i've had to make a covenant i can't get it back now we didn't have money i just said you know he was very conscious that we, he was a civil servant we weren't we weren't poor by any means by any means but i was conscious that you know uh you know, we, we, we got our groceries on ticket at the end of the week and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, I said, what are you telling me? He said, I, I can't get the money back. So I'll have to stay and do medicine. He said, yes, he said. Uh, well, otherwise, at very least, I have to continue paying. And I backed out of the room. And uh, it, was, it was a kind of a tradition. You'd go in and you'd talk to him before he went to bed and, 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 and uh, Josh and stuff. Um. So you have to ask me, had he paid the fees, Coleman? And was it, did he? He didn't, I bet you. No, he had paid a little <laughs> donation of a 50-year guinea tick to a ticket over the next five years. So there was a truth in it. Um, but it, I went back and uh, said, I probably got to do this. And, uh, and it helped me get through the crisis. It contained my destruction. It was wonderful parenting. And, uh, and I'm terribly grateful to him. Now, I... I didn't make a terribly good medical student and it took a long while to do. And I did everything else. I mean, the, my, my high points in medical school were going to Africa or again, doing debates or getting involved in sort of activities in one kind or another, being in a band. But, 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 but that didn't matter in a way because by the time I finished medical school, it didn't matter what I knew then either because it was really, everything was to be learned in terms of detail post that. Again, college, I think it was one, I'm not so sure about short-term medical. This was a five, six-year course. So again, it offered a, a, a maturing or immature young man tremendous containment. Mm. Um, again, with a great exposure. I mean, I went to Africa, went all around Europe, I went to America, all through the college surgeons. Mm. Okay. But it was contained. And so I came out at uh, 2024 and uh, you know, I got an all right degree and I was fine. But, and I got my jobs in Dublin, which was really privileged. I was still, I didn't leave home until I was 29 when I got married. That was the way it was those days. But in the interval between 24 and 29, I worked mostly in Connolly Hospital, lots of really good people. And was, I suppose, again, I come back to hope. I was just lucky to have patrons all the time. So again and again and again, uh, really good people just said they'd, you know, help me direct me, uh, keep me on or contain me or whatever. I could list them off, mm. but I've never and, been without that. And, and you bring on that point about, you know, adversity and whether, and there's a, there probably is a commonly held belief that in order to be resilient, we have to overcome adversity. And I can remember speaking to a young person once and I always, I said to her, you always, I always think you're older than you are. You know, I keep forgetting you're only 15 or something. And she said in a jokey way, that'll be the trauma. <laughs> As if to say, it kind of aged me and it matures me. But the, the resilience, I, I, I'm not entirely sure you have to endure adversity in order to be resilient. And I think, which gets me on to the, the book, and I, I want to talk about this a little bit, the, the plan for living in a time where we are now tested in terms of our despair, in terms of our optimism, in terms of, and when we talked about how generations before have overcome 
plagues and, you know, 1947, 1918, all those things. And they draw upon something within themselves, whether it be a kind of an optimism that we'll get through it or whether it be a grit or a sense of community or whatever. Um, in terms of resilience is an overused word, and I think it probably encapsulates lots of things. In the whole new plan for living, what is what are we looking at there in terms of a a way of being that allows us to get through this? Um, if we well, haven't I, I, had too much adversity, yes, well, well, or that we recognise that we can't we can't put it down to the Gregorian calendar and say that was the forty five war or whatever. Yes, I think we. I don't think any of us gets out without adversity. Actually, I was very keen in writing this book. Again, my brother encouraged me. He said, "My, you know, I was in lockdown. I was in cocoon." Um, I, I knew I wanted to write a book. I'd written various drafts of other things. I've shown you, Colin, mm. you were good enough to read them. You didn't dismiss them, which was very kind of you. Uh, and uh, I, 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 But he said, no, don't do that. Write a happy book. Write a book that will help people be happy. And again, there's a whole industry around happy. But so I went back to lots of questions, you know, and I, this sounds a bit heavy, but we're talking about lockdown and we're talking about 3,000 Irish, you know, 2 million across the world dead. This is a time where you're asking these questions. So what's it all about was a good question. So I wrote the questions down on a piece of paper. What's it all about? What are we doing here? What's it for? How do we do it? What is it we do? What does it matter? What, where do we want to go? I didn't have a book. I just wrote these things down. Uh, I shared that with a patient on a Zoom call and they said, oh, well, we find when you get us to write things down, it's very helpful. I, I realized, gosh, that might be a way. I was as far from a didactic book as you can imagine. And yet I thought, then people say, well, take it, take us forward. So what's it all for? I said, the first thing is, is really let's contemplate it. I do think that there is a time for thought. Mm. Don't know that that's very fashionable, but I think that it's, it's, you don't have to be dismissed as an intellectual to say, look, let's be thinking. We're homo sapiens. Mm. Think about it. Let's plan. And then I looked at, you know, you know, the, then I wanted, I wanted not condescending. I wanted simple, really valid images for each idea in the book okay so i then went you know the lovely idea of pre-contemplation leading to contemplation leading to action leading to management leading to reaction it's a wonderful idea that you can keep it's all the time going and the fact that i failed to give up the ciggies 10 times that's fine mm. i was in pre-contemplation i was in contemplation i can still make action work and i captured one so that was the first idea let's think about it. second thing was what is health what is it about well, I, I thought, well, the, the eight dimensions of health are wonderful, wonderfully diverse and I think um, encapsulating idea of health without being ridiculously reductionist. So physical health, for example, is just one aspect of health. And it goes mm -hmm. right across environmental health and all the health. It's so important. The eight, But I thought, how do I capture that and make it useful? And I thought, well, that has to be something that we can do in steps, maybe. And so I went through each of those eight dimensions and thought, I wrote, say, 500 words on each of the eight. And then thought, well, yeah, but there's not, that's not satisfactory enough because really I want emotional health. I want people to know about compassion, about how you continue to care for each other. And I realized what I was stuck in, and it was a good place to start, was self-care. And again, I, I had the benefit of writing this during the year, but constantly talking about it to my patients. So I'm 35 years in practice. 
And, you know, there's been some tragedies and some losses, and, and I, I remember all of them. And so I decided I'm going to dedicate this book to those we've lost. So it became an emotionally deep thing for me. And so I put in that for those we've lost. But I started sharing it with my patients, some of them who have done very well, amazing people. And they encouraged me to continue this idea. And uh, one of them, Sarah, said to me, you know, what about Foucault's you know, technologies of the self? The self-care is actually a really important idea. What are our technologies? And so she's done a study, this is wonderful, she's done a study on, on the idea of how mental health and chronic chest disease works, okay? And it turns out that people with chronic chest disease have huge mental health challenges, guilt, not well, not, but they also have the sense that they, they have to do their own thing. So although the doctor thinks they're prescribing Ventolin for them, they're also taking ginseng and all kinds of things. They've got yeah. technologies of the self. And she encouraged me to, Sarah encouraged me to think of that. And with that, I moved on and realized that self-care is the start. Well, knowing what it's about is the start thinking about it and self-care is a start but at that point you then have to go further and I then began to hope that this book would be authentic in a way that other let's say self-help books may not have been in that you you, you, know, you know other people would tell you get fit get to the gym yeah I don't want to be don't be minimizing it but you know you know you've had all the rhubarb you can eat it's it, at certain stage your, your bowels are clean now what do you do mm. and and it's 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 a question then of where do you go and at that point, then I thought, well, I need another step. And in fact, each of these things are steps. So awareness, decision. One of the steps is to, to answer the question, what's it for? And one of the, the, the self-care answer for me was, well, it's to care for myself. Well, that is a purpose. OK, you might say it's a minimal purpose, but it, I'm not caring for myself for any other reason than I need to be cared for. And somebody has to do it. Mm. And then that care is ultimately to live, work, and love, to, 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 to live independently, to work productively, to love socially, which brings us out of ourselves. So at a point, you've got to get to the second half of the book, which is you know, step five onwards, where I try and bring you through the vicissitudes of life with uh, challenges at work, at home, at uh, you know, disease and ill health and, 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 and loss, to a, a, a tenth stage where, where, we're, where we're in a sense we're doing it all again, but we're actually knowing why we're doing it and how to do it. And we're getting to a point where we're what I call collaborating. And uh, so I peppered it with various stories from my life. There is the story about my father. Um, and, and it begins early on with that stories through, through, the, through the thing about patience and of identity, uh, the idea of authenticity. It, I used Mary Leamy's acronym i'm sure you're familiar with it uh called, called chime so these are the five features of what resilient and if you like recovery based initiatives that are successful or are, are based on c is for connected h is for hope i is for identity recognizing our diversity and all that m is for meaning and e is for empowerment and at the end i said you know i've tried to, to get all those five things into the plan how can we get connected and hopeful have integrity and identity. How can we have meaning and empowerment? Um, and in the end, I, I end with with an epitaph or sorry, an epilogue where I say, well, you know, I, I shifted away from the personal reference because I don't. I want the book the book to to and I used it as an allegory, but it's also true. One of my COVID lockdowns experiences, which is joining a group of friends 
to form a band, which, by the way, we call the collaborators. And and um, I'm in the band, and I love those people, and we have a lot of fun, although we've been parted from each other and so on. Mm. And so it was kind of a, a story from my father's uh, <clears throat> initial, admonish, not admonishment, but direction to me, which was to build a whole new plan for living. By the way, that was a direction he gave to me, not when I went to the College of Surgeons, but when I had to tell him that he was dying. And uh, he said, well, Jimmy, if what you tell me is true, there's something I need you to do for me. And I said, what, Dad? And he said, I need you to uh, give me a whole new plan for living. And he passed a white piece of paper and a pencil toward me and said, write it down. And I went out and cried. So that's the opening of the book. <laughs> so ultimately, I've tried to answer those questions with, the experience that I've had, I mean, Adam Clayton is very nice by saying, you know, Jim has put all his experience into the book. Uh, you know, it is, a, it is really a constellation of those experiences, given as lightly as I can, but really rooted on uh, elements of the recovery model, elements of uh, the CHIME model, uh, based on, and I, you know, there'll be specific discussions about specific illnesses, and then authentically trying to say, well, let's take on real issues. So if there are issues, so, I mean, it, it does include these, uh, I, I, I developed a technique of trying to write pieces around 500 words. And it's, it's swiftly an idea. The idea, if you, you read, you know, uh, Three Men in a Tub or, or Gulliver, he's constantly digressing and he just goes off the story and you get into this thing where you're having, you know, about 500,000 words on something else. And you say, what's that about? But you then come back to the boat or you come back to the story. Mm. And I thought, I, I, I flattered myself that I was being swifty and doing that. So you just have a sudden discussion about what do you do with suicide? What do you say about it? How do you respond to that? How do you talk to a child about that? And I hope those stand up uh, because, and then you come back to, and now yours, here's your journey. And ultimately uh, I close it by wishing people that they make their own plan because the plan is a blank piece of paper. I didn't mm. write it. Mm. They write their own page. So when you have all this good stuff about self-care, emotional care, coping with illness, dealing with the, the, the job loss, <clears throat> you're still left with a blank page. Mm. When you get to step six, you have, to, you have your page is blank and you say, I've got all that stuff down, but who am I? What am I doing? The questions are started with. Mm. How do I do it? Where am I going to? And I'm saying that our store has been set too low. I think a part of anxiety, for me, anxiety is mitigated by engagement with the issue. So the, uh, that's always been, the, 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 you know, all right, let's do something. Yet that's the civil engineer. Mm. Um, the concern comes from the clinician, maybe from the, the maternal doctor. But the engagement with the issue is the management of the anxiety that they both brought to it. They both were anxious. So I'm saying, here's a plan. It is, it's a civil engineering response to a clinical medical challenge, to a humane challenge. And I think ultimately, you know, he used to say every day, what's the plan? And, and, and if you ask me, do I think we have a, a plan for health in this country? I think we don't. If you think, do, do, do we have ambition for our health care in this country? You, you see that that's all covered in this. We, our, our ambitions are too low. We have a tradition of saying, going to the Department of Health is like going to Angola, which is an offense to Angola, but it was a, a paradigm for a hopeless civil war situation. And that was, that was what ministerial level, we said that. Whereas I think we can achieve 
I, I really do think, and I think with respect, you and I both managed not to, to transform services that we were in and make difference. And, and, and actually that's why you go into the health services because you actually can make a difference, make people's lives better, not every day, but for some people, most days. And uh, I don't think we've set our store nearly high enough, but to do that, I think we should lower our hurdles and jump more of them. I hope you don't mind sitting with us for another little bit, Jim, because part of this podcast is that people ask questions of things that they're struggling with. And oftentimes that is the question. Should I get help or not? At what point does the mental distress become mental disorder? And so if you wouldn't mind, sitting oh, yeah. through, we'll go through here. And, and if you can chip in, please. So the particular concern is a 12 year old girl restricting her diet, becoming a real problem brought it up with her twice in the last few weeks. She told me she was fat and doesn't want to be fat and, and she's happy how she is now, but continues to restrict her diet, continuing to lose weight. Mum says she's looked up body-wise websites and things and has a f- certain amount of knowledge around this area, but is worried that she f- is afraid she'll say the wrong things and make things worse. Contacted the GP and is waiting for a call back this week. But is there any help that we can make? So this is a, a common presentation, Jim. Yes. You and I would have yes. met people with eating problems all the time. And I suppose what I'd be saying to this listener is oftentimes, and again, please chip in, Jim, if you wish. I, I think this is much more about feelings than food. This yes. tends to be yes. Yes, an issue where we become overwhelmed by life and we look to something to control something that gives us a sense of mastery over and from from the infant who refuses the spoon you know by covering their mouth it's a way of saying all is not well you know and I think the the issue here for mom is that this child is trying to communicate something about all not being well the issue to get obsessed around the food and intake will probably it'll give her that visibility but i'm guessing it might not give her the sense of feeling understood um there's a meaning behind this behavior what are your thoughts there jim well well, i i think that's right i think it's important it's great the questions come in it's great to unpack it and i see things as sort of as a social psychiatrist in terms of relationships there's the relationship of the 12 year old girl with herself and with her mother and with her growing uh 12 year oldness okay so there's a whole series of relationships and they're big stuff to get done because relationships really are uh, uh, what we call uh, the work of being in relation to others and to ourselves. OK, and so I think about her relationships for a minute and we put that to one side. And then I think of mother's relationships. And then I listen when I people say, what do you do as a psychiatrist? What I do is I listen and I'm listening. One of the problems with the modern Zoom world is I also like to see and, and listen. And it's so difficult to see and listen with the, the Zoom world. But she said, I'm afraid. Now I'm immediately in here. Mother's afraid. Mother, of course she's afraid. It takes courage to bring a child into the world. It's a wonderful thing to do and to stick with it. And look, we talked about parental anxieties and I shared with you the my generations of parental anxieties. So I'm not saying she's wrong to be afraid. What I'm saying is she can be hopeful that she can manage her fears. Be hopeful because she can. Let's look at her fears. She fears her child is going to get sick and be very, very sick. But she's there for that child. And, and, and we're going to make sure that, you know, her, her needs are met. That's why we go to work every day and why the health service, you know, all its critique and all that. We're, we're, there are people out there who will be there for her. But she's going to manage this. If you were to be really narrow and medical and say, look, check the child's BMI, 
if it's falling steadily and we're getting to critical levels, of course we'll do medical intervention and so on. But I think you're right to speak to the child's relationships as well and see, well, this isn't actually about that yet. We have no knowledge of whether there's critical illness here at all. But we have is a behavior which is always a manifestation of an emotion and a relationship. And you unpack those. I'm 12. I'm, I'm a young girl. I am dealing with whatever I'm dealing with. And food is my communication. Food is my possibly even my vindication. Food in some way does something that is, is either by taking it or not taking it, my medicine. It's empowering. And so all of those things need to be understood. If food becomes a battleground and a war zone, and that's not going to help the child. What do we do? Well, some people say, don't tell me about it. Tell me what to do. Well, I think we can plan what we do. I really do think it starts with thinking about it, stepping back, getting a blank page, putting, being honest with ourselves. I would have said it starts with talking about it, but I think it probably starts with listening. So when does she, when does she refuse food? When does food become an issue in the conversation? What's that about? Why do we eat? Do we eat for fun? Do we eat for sustenance? You know, do we, does eating become something that is a battleground? Over COVID, we found here, and because there have been various volumes in, it was, it was in this house of my family, we found that the, the meal is a hugely important thing. But actually, you know, we can't keep up the, the, the feeding because we would never have been locked down feeding. It's just it's just we can't. None of us can care. So, you know, we make a thing of, uh, you know, taking different nights to do feeds or we will have days where we don't do feed. <laughs> this is a feed free day. Or we'll have a day where we say, well, look, Friday night is going to be takeout and we're going to make it the thing. Now, why is that? Are we hungry? Well, we're not. We're probably not hungry. But food becomes a dynamic family communication. Sometimes it's worthwhile for mum to step back and say, what's she frightened of? And ask herself, is the child saying, I'm frightened too? Is she picking up the child's fear? Because I really do believe that we can communicate with each other about our fears in ways that lift us above the immediate medical hazards and then allow us to unpack our emotional needs. And, and that's only by stepping back and thinking about it and talking about it. And it'll be all right. And I think it is, there's something about the lockdown 11 months that has uh, really exacerbated the, the issues of control. I think people who, you know, there are, so much of our control has been taken from us in terms of our own choices. And we are seeing a kind of a, a definite uh, agitation of the eating difficulties. The second question is from a lady who's a single parent of two boys, aged 13 and nine. She's concerned about the teenager's behavior and attitude, loves doing the opposite to what he's being asked, no remorse about his negative actions, language or behavior, physical or verbal, back answering. This lady says, I've genuinely lost the will to carry on parenting him as I feel he is resentful and being parented unless my style changes to letting him do whatever he wants and when he wants uh, and how he wants it. Uh, and I, I almost feel like he or we need therapy. And again, this is a common issue, Jim, is that kind of, parent a child to parent hostility you know where there's almost a a parent who feels intimidated or under threat by a growing 
young person. And, you know, in most cases, you'd always, I'd always be of the view of, you know, giving teenagers what they need, sometimes more than what they deserve. I would be a strong advocate that I don't believe nagging works in any way. And it can be a cycle of relating that we can get into. And I certainly would draw a line around, you know, if your safety is in risk, you need to be looking for support around that. Um, but the the idea of hostility, oppositionality, this a single mom, you know, is this being, he's 13, he's acting out. These are difficult positions for mum to be in and difficult. Obviously, the boy is not having, a, is, is not a bed of roses for him either in terms of his own life. Any contributions to that, Jim? Well, I, I think it comes back to this idea of relationship in any case between parent and child and this exceptional time of siege. I, I hate the word lockdown. I, I just don't think it, it, it puts it in historical context. And I think in the future, we'll be describing our history as, you know, at least our modern history as anti-COVID and, and post-COVID, you know, to be before and after. And we've had 11 months of this young person's life in a post-COVID world. So let's talk about it genuinely in terms of that rather than the kind of general things. For, for mom here, there is a really increased difficulty around doing what we'd have to do anyway, which is to somehow accommodate the emerging chick from this egg. And it's violent, you know, it's going to be violent. And I'm not, I'm not preaching lessons from my five, by any means I've got very mixed ability children and lots of different outcomes. But the thing is that that distance, that, that expression has to be accommodated. It can't be shut down, it can't be controlled. And yet we are in lockdown, so everything is shut down. And so, you know, you, you, th there is a necessity for some capacity within the system to expand. And yet that's anathema to lockdown where we are, you know, under siege and, and contained. It requires enormous patience on the child and enormous patience on the adult to actually allow that expansion space. You know, to echo it, completely agree with what you're saying. It, there are things that you just try not to do or don't do uh, because they fit with this. First of all, strife is never helpful. Okay, so Swift said, argument is the poorest form of conversation. So, you know, it's never, now there are very few things that are absolutely never. <laughs> well, there's one, strife is never helpful. So when you have the temptation to go back up to that bedroom and give them another word of your mind, don't, just don't. Now, but trust, in a sense, you have to say, trust me, bit like um, the containment we talked about earlier, but just know that. Now, will I be doing a good job if I leave it be? What, what, um, surely I need to intervene. I'm just saying you need to plan and be an interventionist. No, yes, but not a strifist, not an agist. I think there is a lot to be said out of the craft movement, you know, that's uh, the community uh, movement that, that says we can model better behavior. So at some stage, actually the thing for parents is to step back, give breathing space, and be themselves as happy as they can be just for that. As a conditioning model, it's a really powerful tool. At a third level, though, I think that it also is the case that when we're out of control, we can do a lot of harm. And we need, just as you talk in your book about providing a containing environment for the child, and it's difficult in the context of, of lockdown, but I think parents do a lot of good when they contain their own distress, however they can manage it. And I mean authentically, I don't mean by going off and doing marijuana or drugs or drink or whatever. 
what can we do to do that? Get out of the get out of the backyard, go for a walk, whatever. But it is important we see that as parenting. Because a fourth idea I want to give is the idea that each of us is actually in orbit, in a kind of constellation. Our own orbit is, you know, it's going no matter what, it's providentially, it's going one way or another. Okay. I'm very conscious of this. At my age, I'm 62, a couple of illnesses just emerged, end of one career, building another. I have a sense of the time of things. Okay. It's an orbit sense. Okay. It's got to be good that I embrace that. But I could actually go along and talk to my 13-year-old and say, why is he jamming his bass guitar in the bedroom at 11 o'clock when everybody wants to sleep? <laughs> Probably I need to know that he's in an orbit too. It's just not my orbit. And his accommodation to his difficulties is not directly going to help me with mine. Okay? It's not. We are, in a sense, uh, aligned but not configured to modify each other. Our alignment is both close and independent. And that's really a difficult thing when you're stressed. And it's quite different, in a sense, I think, from the parenting model that might have preceded us. And I talked about good parenting in, in the past. But if we look back, it's not that long ago, and certainly across the world, where children are chattels of the parent whose lives are there in order to be um, prosperous for the overall parental environment and agenda. And the idea, as our colleague Paul Gillian would have said, that you know the purpose of a child is to be a child is completely contrary to that. But the difficulty is you can't just then have laissez-faire attitude and say, well, look, let's just you know, let him be rude and oppositional and so on. So, all right, no strife. Yes, I will try and contain my stuff, whatever I can do. I'll hope that my being happy is a good model. And then lastly, I'd say, well, look, what can I do to make it possible for this young man or young woman to communicate their journey. Because I'm not just a satellite, I'm a parental satellite. Mm. So now I'm saying, well, there will come a time. And I, I really do think, and it's, I say this in the book, it's often on the corner of the stairs or sometimes just going out the door where there's a moment, just a moment, where they reflect back and dilute their oppositionalism, dilute their, and, and mitigate your pain in your heart and my heart. And they just say, no, I have that covered. You know, I had a conversation today with one of my kids and I crossly said, uh, is that a priority? And the young man turned out and said, well, it is for me. <laughs> I was immediately annoyed, but he was great because he came around and said, but I'll get that other thing done. I will. And I realized he was really doing his best. OK, so mm -hmm. do I say you're not doing your priority? Well, I've already decided I'm not I've decided in principle I'm not going to do that. But equally, I was tremendously pleased by that just little bit of release from the oppositional young person who did reach. And that was that has to be enough. Mm -hmm. See, so in a sense, the parent's role is to um, what what does uh, James Martin say? You know, our children are not problems to be solved, but mysteries to be enjoyed. And I think that that is something that is really wonderful. But on the other hand, it's too hard because you do say, you know, I said, is that a priority? And, yeah. and he came up with this cheeky answer, well, this to me, as though that all, and of course, for him, that's all that matters. But equally, when I blanched, I was luckily, because I hadn't lost it, able to come around and hear him say, 
but I will get that done. If we had lost that communication, lost that relationship, I wouldn't have heard that good stuff. The caller needs to be hopeful that if she can do those four things I've said, that she'll get that call back, which will mitigate her needs. There's a, a wonderful example coming to mind when you're talking there. One is for your own young lad. And I remember in a family meeting where a mom and a, and a child were having at odds about who was telling the truth. And he stood up and said, my truth is the only truth that matters to me. <laughs> And it was exactly this. Uh, but I'm gonna, again, the, the issue around parental conflict with teenagers and the arguing, we argue and row and fight despite knowing that it won't work. It never, the, no argument is resolved in an argument. And I always think of, there's no great philosopher or anything, but Billy Connolly says, you know, you go to a football match and you're thinking, yay for my team and boo for your team. And you're saying boo for your, my team and yay for your team. At no point does somebody go, actually, you're right. Your team is better than my team. <laughs> I mean, nobody The more ever, you boo me, you know, ever, the more I think you're making a point. It's quite right. Nobody ever comes back and say, says, you know, and says, actually, you know, I, I've, I've been for Liverpool, but now I want to be for Man U. <laughs> That's never yeah. happened. It's never happened. No matter how much you boo them. Do you no know matter what I mean? how again, much you boo them. I mean, again, going back to my own youth, my mother, who was a debater and was, you know, a campaigner and all these things. But my father would say, but Mary, nobody is going to change their mind no matter what you say. This is pointless. So, again, mm. I really, but it's, it's, it's in a sense still necessary. And I think there's another point we can say to the listeners, which is in a loving environment, it's probably okay. It's going to be all right. It's, again, a question of degree rather than category. I mean, I think you, I mean, I've had some involvement with the school recently, and there was a movement in the school to set down a series of, of, of let's say, behavioral norms and accepted things. And I thought, well, I can back this. They asked me to back it. A very substantial number of the parents came back and said they didn't believe that the parents should set down any behavioral norms. And I was, you know, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time at this. So I think, again, degree and category are important. I think for the parent to say, well, okay, uh, you know, the only truth that matters is yours. Fine. There, there is another view of that. I think my truth is, and by the way, I bought breakfast. <laughs> and leave it at that. I think humor matters because I think you do need to know. And otherwise the parental tool of containment is and safety, the need for safety isn't managed if you just abdicate. But that's not the same as strife and harangue and, and, and bluff and blister all the time. It's not that there. You really have lost it then. We know you've lost it. The next question, I'm glad I have you on for this one, Jim, because this is something that comes up for me an awful lot of times. There's a long email here about a, a lady who goes into great detail describing her six-year-old. Now, there's a lot of things in this that I suppose for me, are relatable to some uh, case of something that I'd be familiar with. So it's speech delay, uh, some obsessions, you know, issues with obsessed with number plates, very difficult issues with clothes, tactile. And then there's a, a, an extreme emotional dysregulation, unable to manage when friends are playing. There's difficulties in the room, will storm off. Very difficult to kind of talk around when, when they are upset. Um, Mum has done everything she can, is very, very committed to trying to, has taken some time off work. Um, 
is finding that the kind of range of sulking and and the, uh, it's emotionally and physically exhausting. And there's lots of the there's the sensory issues. There seems to be communication issues. There seems to be now, Jim, is, you would know. I'm listening, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking there's a dilemma here. That you don't want to be going down diagnoses route from reading something like that, but you don't want to give someone a piece of advice that isn't the right advice either. You know, the way there's a, that dilemma around, um, you know, I'll be honest, there's an element of that that would look to be on the autistic spectrum, the the, the kind of sensitives. My, my worry with that always is if we don't acknowledge that there are perhaps these pathologies or these symptoms that we're asking a child, we're seeing a child as unwilling to behave when in actual fact they may be unable to. And there's two different approaches to that. But then you don't want to come down on the other side of, you know, giving a six-year-old a title that may well be difficult for them to undo. Um, and, you know, when you're in that position, it's very difficult to say. I mean, my piece of advice traditionally would be get this checked out a little bit further. There may be other things at play that are creating these difficulties both socially and developmentally. There's lots of the issues she has mentioned about him being quite immature to his peers. There's observations in school that his emotional maturity isn't what it should be. Mm. Um, mm. What, where do we sit on that? Because this is tricky, isn't it? Oh, this isn't, this is a global question you've asked me. This is a huge question. And I, I, I'm conscious that, you know, when you put it down on tape, it's there forever. And so I want the answers I'm giving to be, I want you to allow me to be on the one hand and on the other hand and on the other hand and discourse Please. it a little bit. Please, because, yes. because if we do, if we if we come down in the wrong place here, you know, Coleman or Jim said there isn't this is just just a pity. You know that I, I don't want to happen. So okay, so at a, at a at a certain level, I want as I do with each of the parents that have come in to to reach out and say look i'm feeling your pain we do we we I know what you're going through actually kind of do i think i do maybe i don't but this is not easy this is hugely difficult mm. and i think simply to be uh, empathic and to realize these difficulties are huge in in lockdown is important people need to not feel guilt not feel chastised just as they i want them not to feel hopeless they do also need not to feel self reproach i'm going to start with a view that is negative to the medical model, okay? And people understand what the medical model is. So I'm a medical doctor, and by my, my educational DNA, I'm looking for a category and a disorder with a natural history, a treatment, and an outcome. Okay, that's, that's, that's and you, you put that into somebody's DNA at 17, and they, they do that, okay? And I, I, that's who I am as well. But against that model, is the view that we've always had oppositionalism. We have to have a freshness and newness. Each generation has to grow new. And we have, I think in the last, um, I suppose, century and a half, had tremendous progress of written down understanding of the merits and the challenges and the difficulties within all that, which is the body of work of psychology in a sense, of, of, of psychotherapy, of insight, of, and so on. And so we now know not only is this always been the case, but it's actually necessary and good at times. You know, so I love Winnicott. I mean, Winnicott is my, like, it's just, he's up there with my, my pantheon because his, his essay is do not be upset about the naughty child. Do I celebrate the child who reaches out and breaks, breaks the crockery. 
because that child is not the one you need to worry about. That child is communicating their emotional distress in a way which at least brings it to attention. I think there's an enormous lot of truth in that, not just because it somehow vindicates the child, but because it offers the parent an alternative to a catastrophic medical model, which says that your child has autism and it's just going to go this way. Okay. Turns out the medical model isn't very good around autism. I'm not an autism denier at all. But let's say some facts about autism. If I commonly talk about the common mental health disorders, this is dangerous stuff, but I'm going to try and get it out there and see what I hope. The common mental health disorders, anxiety, depression, addiction, self-harm, PTSD, they have increased year on year for some years. Okay. Now, their instances doubled this year across Western Europe. At the same time, the, the so-called serious mental health disorders, schizophrenia, bipolar mood disorder, and autism have remained static. They have not changed. So there's something about that that says environmental influences, which are pressurizing the common mental health disorders upwards, are not the progenitors of the emergence of this condition. So we shouldn't suddenly start thinking that COVID is causing an increase in autism. Behavioral disorders in young children are not being caused by an increase in autism. They're being caused, if they are there, by environmental factors, which we can speculate about and probably address, but that's not autism. Mm. And so that then gives a scope, while I'm not despairing about autism, it also gives a scope to be not despairing about the emergence of difficulties because they are, in a sense, increasingly understandable and mm. addressable and, and, and disentangleable if we recognize that. So I would say a third thing, which is pretty more controversial, and that was to say to you, is it possible for us to come back to the Swiftian idea of category versus degree? don't want to draw from my own family, but, but yeah, people, re- listeners will draw their own conclusions and see within the family a spectrum of abilities, whether they're emotional or intellectual or sporting, that is quite wide. I mean, really quite wide. People who are able to be emotionally connected and contained and people, young people who are not at all and who find it diff- more difficult. And certainly my, I have had in my own, not wishing to burden the, the listeners, but had to try and address this in my own expectations. Because for little detail, I've, although we're um, one couple married, we actually have what we call two families, uh, three older kids with a 12-year gap and then two more kids. I don't know how that happened. Maybe somebody in the, your next speaker could explain all that to me. It's just it's one, of the, some, one of those things. I'll have to go to a course or something. But anyway, so we got this 12-year gap. And we start again with this, what we call the little people. And I would have to say that I've given hours of thinking as to why the older people are different from the little people. And there's, and there's no question that they're hugely different. But, but the simplest reason is they're just simply younger and I'm older. And times have moved on. But they are different. And within that group, I can see the whole difference in, in the emotional resonance, the tolerance, the patience, the egoism, the ambition, the, the, the stress, the distress all of that different. And, you know, it'd be tempting to say, well, he's got so-and-so, she's got so-and-so. And certainly in, if you go back to sort of Victorian or early, or Edwardian or early uh, free state Irish parenting, children tended to be dedicated to a certain role. 
So if you went to the, the Christian brothers, you were told you're going to do the junior X, you're going to do the farm, you're going to do, you're going to go to the church. You mm -hmm. were given a role and the role was about an identity of who you were and you were in that box. There was no question of moving away from this. This was one you were given from, if you were lucky to get one. But in my, in my childhood, I would, my role was to be ill. So I was perennially sick as a kid. I had uh, various, lots and lots of illnesses, right? was born with a cleft palate and I was taught to speak. It must have been pretty shocking for my mother. I had cross eyes and food coming down my nose and all this kind of stuff. And so I was regarded as the ill boy in the family. And so if I was to say what my role was, my role was to triumph over this illness or indeed to, to be ill. Now that's completely daft. And as it happens, who knows whether I did or didn't, but it was definitely a role I had. And there's a time I think where we have now got to a point where perhaps we need to pull back from calling every role some medical label. When we, we need to see the variety of our children, the spectral nature, the diversity of our children, and not box them into the, the sick one or the able one, the, the, the emotional one or the frail one. It, these are simply snapshots in time. And medical diagnostics are very weak at that level. But in any case, human experience would tell me that that might be the case today, but actually mm. not necessarily. But he's a great story about a woman who brings her, who's caught up with a teacher because the child has been naughty in the class. And the child is just fidgety, can't concentrate, doesn't, doesn't sit down. And this is the third school the child has been at. And the parent comes up and says, I just can't face this headmaster again. But this headmaster is different. Because the mother brings in and says, look, I know my child is fidgety. I know she won't sit down. I know she can't concentrate. I've had that in the last two schools. And he says, no, no, that's not why I called you. I wanted to say that your daughter is a dancer. And she says, pardon? And that girl went on to be the choreographer for Lloyd Webber's Cats. Wow. And it is, to me, I think, an important... Now, yeah. I'm simply saying I want us to pull back from the labeling and the categorizing in which it disables us from addressing the things. Coming back to the same theme we started with, how do we deal with our anxiety? We make a plan empowered around the things we can identify and, 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 and describe and consider in a whole way and become less fearful of what we can't understand and more empowered about what we can be hopeful to address. And, and so engagement with life becomes possible yeah. only when you do it that way. And that's energy that takes time and all that self-care. I, I think you, that you, when you talk about that kind of the, the, the biological or medical DNA that we all have in psychiatry, and it is, it is a hard thing to shift. I, I could, I'll just tell you one for, funny story. I was on, I think, one of those the, the, the phone-in shows and there was a, an email about a child who was 14 who was um, seeing dead people in the house. And of course, my brain went to psychosis or hallucinations or something. So I swiftly suggested that they see a, a renowned psychiatrist fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And there was a litany of tweets and emails into the station from the clairvoyant community who were very annoyed that I was... Uh, suggesting to pathologize this child who clearly had a gift and so the, the idea that you can never get it right because I could imagine if I said 
you know, this child is a gift and we should, you know. I mean, that's the point. Nothing we're saying about this is meant to offend anyone. No. I don't no. think you can, you, we're not giving an authentic hope here. It's authentic hope. Let's be informed about these things. I do think that it, it, the, the, the roles we give is a good example for how we categorize and always have done, you know. Oh, so-and-so's a joker, so-and-so's a... Actually, no, they're just that now. And who knows mm. what they are. So one of the ways we get around this in the, within the medical model, which, by the way, I would defend, is by attaching time to it. So if you take the medical descriptors of, say, the clairvoyance experience, and we know that if you attach six months observation to that, you get a very good predictive outcome, much, much better. So stop. The mm. time is coming when some things will, different, will be different. And that's why I like the idea of orbiting. So, you know, it is, and I come to this in the book, it is deeply reassuring to know that the sun rises every day, that the world keeps turning, and that actually our little piece of it is quite brief. Mm. And that's okay. And in that time, it's great to have a next generation to worry about. Mm. And all we're doing is setting them up in a sense as best we can for their orbit. And so there's a certain anxiety that comes from the sense of which it's all about us. Now, it isn't all about us, but it can be made better for each of us by sharing it in some way. I do think while we're here, we should try and help each other. And that's me, I, you know, end of strife, less chastisement, lowering our targets, um, spending more time talking about or being loving to each other. And one of the things you talk about there about that kind of social construction into the sick one or the wild one or the quiet one and you know that representing a moment in time it's funny because so many young people that i meet and maybe from first year to third year they're a bit of a troublemaker or they're a little bit off the middle and when they say they, they make a pledge to change so i'm going to be good from now on it's the hardest thing to shrug is that reputation because they're they're changing, they're doing everything right, but as soon as there's trouble in the school or something goes missing, the the society looks to them and they go, Well, I'm I'm innocent here, but my reputation is creating. So why what's the point? You know, there's almost that the, the social I think, I think I think I mean how long we've we got. I think you're talking about something that's really relevant, actually, in that it's it is different now to put the past behind you when everything is actually fixed, not only in in terms of the conversation, but the societal fixity of the social media. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, I might have done lots of things at school. I might have been suspended for a year. I might have done lots of, but nobody knows that. Nobody knows that. Whereas if I had done it in, in, what, in 2021 compared to 1975, it, it, it probably is on social media now. And I think there's another thing that I think the young people are telling me that they experience. I wonder where you can... It's a sense of the projection of their identities now, while they're still forming their identities into this third space, this outer space, not just the space of those who love them or their own inner space, but a third outer space that's completely uh, boundless and permanent and unregulated. And they are since split. So they now have this Instagram space, this Instagram existence. And they experience a distress between the disparity between that Instagram of themselves it's not that one or other is false, one of, the, one, one of my young people said to me. It's not that when she's got, you know, her, her, her glad rags on and she's on Instagram, that that other image is false. It's that inherently now they're experiencing a reality of being split at the one time. 
And, and I, I don't know what that's going to do in the future. I don't know. I do know that it's a challenge we didn't have. Mm. I, I was who I thought I was and who my mammy thought I was, and maybe I my pals, and that was it. Mm. But now you are who all these likes think you are. And that means you are inherently fractured by the order of, of, the, of the system. And we know, we do know psychologically that integrity, bringing yourself together is the source of finding uh, contentment in terms of your ability to relate to others. But if you're split all over the shop, it's very, very hard. Absolutely. And I think that's that's the new space that we're all trying to negotiate. Just time is making fools of us, Jim. But the last questions I had were two questions I want to amalgamate together. One was about a child who is nine, young boy, who's developing a stammer and has had all the speech and language things that the speech and language therapy has said that it's you work on his self-confidence and the stammer will improve. And then the second is another child who since lockdown has kind of been very anxious about going back to school and has a tw- developed a twitch where she's now sitting in school with a hood up because she's very self-conscious about having these twitch. So the mind body kind of, we know that our emotions take place in our, like by virtue of the fact that when we are embarrassed, which is an emotion, our faces go red, would suggest that our bodies and minds are intertwined in the relation to something like a tick or a stammer and the emotional importance or relevance of it. Do you have any thoughts on that, Jim? Or Well, I think there's a lot of work been done. Um, in one of my past lives, I was a neuroimager, so a neurology person. And a lot of work has emerged in the um, late 80s and through the middle 90s uh, on the biological basis of what we call tick, spe- tick spectrum disorder. So blinking, uh, grimacing, it could go right through to full bodily movements of one kind, or but very, very commonly they're localized uh, around around the head and neck. And we do now know that many of these are related to a, a dysregulation of the frontal circuits with, let's say, the, the higher centers of the brain with deeper, older centers in the brain uh, that, that, are, that are related to, the, to emotional and movement control. What's the value of knowing that, that there is this circuitry that can be relatively uh, dysfunctional, you know, so that people do blink and stuff? Well, it works like this. A large number of people who have obsessive compulsive disorders, anxiety disorders of one kind or another, have tick spectrum phenomena. And that does seem to point us to a biological origin for obsessive compulsive disorder, which you know is one to 2% of the population. But a lot of people, far more, have ticks without having psychological difficulties or dysfunctions or limitations which they find difficult to overcome. So that they aren't, it's again, it's not just the chicken and the egg, it's sometimes the chicken says, well, I don't need to go back to the egg. It's actually, I, I can have that without having a disorder. Presumably both are mediated by the same uh, circuits. Okay, so uh, these are involuntary movements. They're not purposeful, they're ticks. But where they're indicative of another di- issue, they do point us towards a hopeful biological strategy for care. And that's where I think you know, so that if, I, if I'm seeing somebody for a new assessment, for um, obsessive compulsive patterns of behavior and, and difficulties that come with that. I am kind of reassured when I see ticks because it's a really solid platform to uh, look at maybe introducing in addition to the, the psychological or the cognitive behavioral interventions that we would do, a biological platform of care. 
because I know that there's a uh, transmission of frontal striatal activity there, that if I mediate that with a chemistry, I actually might bring down the other, other problem as well. So it might sound strange, but I'm kind of therapeutically, uh, a lot, you know, I'm looking for those, okay? Because they give me a prospect of uh, hope for uh, chemical intervention in addition to psychological intervention. But I think that beyond that, we haven't gotten it much further. One of the problems for the neuroimagers is that we've got to a point where actually quite a sophisticated level, we can map out the brain and it's, um, it's various different actions. And people would say a bit like the phrenologists, so what? Mm. You've just identified bumps on the head. And I think that, I don't know, there was a hope that the ability to structurally image the brain in really rigorous ways now with MRA, MRI scans, and to put on top of that functional images, those you see metabolism and you actually see thinking, would somehow bring about meaning. And we're at a really philosophical problem here now that that hasn't really happened. So I can now image somebody laughing. I can image somebody telling a joke, okay, and see the joke, where it is and what it does to your metabolism. It doesn't really help me in terms of defining, at least in terms of our categories of illness, what illness is, and then in terms of treatment. For example, if I intervene and stop that happening, does illness reduce. And we know that to a large extent, uh, antidepressants, for example, globally reduce these phenomena right across the brain, which is why the anti-pharmacists are so hard on them. We know that therapy selectively produces changes in these patterns, which is very interesting. And that's why therapy might be more attractive. But either still, it's just a question of degree, isn't it? We mm. haven't really got category there. So what I'm saying is, I think this is completely speculative, that we're now on the cusp of a molecular era. And I'm really hopeful about this, not least because of the vaccine. Because I think what's happened now is within a, within a year, the capacity of the molecular biologists to select out this virus, identify its uh, key probe, and pick out a part of the protein that can actually mitigate that is so revolutionary, so hopeful, that I have no doubt that a range of illnesses are going to become um, identifiable in this way, you know, with, with, with staggering consequences, I think largely good consequences, such that we can identify the molecular patterns that might map onto those brain changes and onto those brain metabolisms. And I think that's what's going to happen. I really do think that's gonna, and I think the evidence of the uh, identification of the virus and its probe is a good proof that that's going to happen. Now, it turns out the virus is a very small little creature and mm -hmm. they were able to do it, but in a year they could do it and it's going to have global consequences. Imagine what that could do for breast cancer, what it is doing for breast cancer, for ovarian cancers. What will it do for the various brain phenomena that we know are disabling, the crippling depressions, the crippling phenomena where brain shutdown happens? supposing we could unlock the molecular reality of that because we do know that when therapy restores brain it restores those brain functions in those areas therapy psychological therapy talking therapy restores the metabolism the brain blood flow in into the cortex in ways that make a difference and that has to be because the therapy is bringing about a molecular change in the brain 
And so the end of the brain brain has is, is oh it has it is over. Once we know that, we'll start looking at the brain probe that could do it in a whole new way. And in true form, Jim, you, we we have the conversation which is almost like the trifle. And at the end, you just add that dollop of hope, which is always there. And that's the bit that that's the bit where I love. That's the bit where I I leave our conversations with that. You know that there is that optimism. The last question I asked Jim was given that we have had such a difficult 14 months as we've had, what was his takeaway advice for people to get through the remaining part of the pandemic? And here's what he has to say. But I think there's something we have to try and get back to and I I think that your job what you're doing this wonderful wonderful podcast is recognizing the future of healthcare which is not actually about the therapies but about the communication of wellness and health and i think we have to communicate the possibility of love the possibility of loving and being loved we're human we can get through a siege by loving each other so when you're really 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 at the end try and think how can i love myself how can i be loved how can i love someone else ultimately you know and brought <laughs> it was just a whole lot of love and it, and 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 lots of things happened out of that it was just a moment it's not platitudinous it's not overblown it i'm only asking you to get with a hopeful heart and an open mind on a blank page what love can i have for me today and how can i share that with someone else and you'll find i think you'll find that that's a whole new way of living brilliant jim thank you so much for your time your honesty your insights and everything that was just a wonderful chat i, I enjoyed every minute of that <laughs> that was a wonderful jim lucy there and you know jim's insights into the brain, the mind, society, how we're constructed. He really offers us a depth of thinking about things that uh, that I've always benefited from. And uh, his book, A Whole New Plan for Living, along with his other books like In My Room are another great addition to any coffee table um, because I think he offers us a reality of the challenges and lovely dollop of hope as well uh, so i really want to thank jim for that and uh, if you haven't got your hands on his book whole new plan for living i would advise you go out and have a look at it but that's the end of our episode this week uh, we covered a lot in there and uh, i want to thank you all for listening uh, but as i said if you have any other questions we will be doing one more wrap-up session and we will take some questions on that if there's anything in there that has come in in between and then we'll continue with maybe once every fortnight or monthly uh, episodes after that. But uh, uh, I really want to say thank you to Professor Jim Lucy uh, and thank you for listening. And until the next time, take care, stay safe, and bye for now.